We shouldn't talk about this may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody. I'm Key. And I'm V. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This. Good day to you, Key. Good day to you, V. Hmm. What's, what's yeah, this up here? Yeah, that I, I do not know what happened there. Oh, okay. Was going to ignore that ever happened? Yes, let's just keep it rolling. As this will be immortalized on the sound, Aaronette? It will be, but we can just stop talking about it at this point. We should talk about that terrible accent. At all, we should not. Key, the first time I ever got on an airplane is when I went to go visit you. Mm, yeah, that is true. That is correct. And that was going from South Carolina, GSP, to Texas. Um, I've, got, I've got the airport name already. Uh, it was either Houston Hobby or uh, Bush. I think it was Bush. Yeah, it was I Bush. I think it was Bush, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I remember dropping you off. It was Bush International. Yeah, that's my first time. And it's, it's quite an experience. It's like, you know, just a self-guided tour of... Like, you know, you you get here and you just wait for us to say you can get on the plane. It was uh, very interesting. But, I mean, if you miss your plane, that's a big deal, though. So, that's pretty scary. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. I've had a issue where, like, weather held up the plane I was on. And, like, the connecting flight had to sit and wait. Like, they were, like, the plane was already, like... They boarded and everything, and, like, the airport made them wait for our plane to land. And it was only, like, five of us getting on that plane to connect. But they, like, held the plane, and we had to, like, run across the airport to get to it. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that was an adventure. It was. It's, I've been on a lot of plane rides. I don't, I don't mind them too much anymore. I've even been in, like, a little small two-person plane when I was in high school. That's pretty cool. So was that your first flight experience? Yeah, I was in Air Force ROTC and it was like the top students got to go on um, a flight. Like we went to an airport and we each got to like go in with a pilot and fly like a little small plane. That's pretty neat. And it was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. He even let me like control it, and it's very difficult. Like, you really have to have a lot of muscle to like pull the steering thing to keep it level. Yes. I remember that. Man, all right. Was uh, plane technology any different back then? Oh, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. Like, this was back when you know TVs were still in black and white and whatnot. <laughs> you know, it had like two sets of like floppy wings like mm. I'm pretty sure the pilot's last name was Wright and that he might have had a brother wow that that's pretty insane yeah it was a while ago it was definitely a while ago well Key you know what's pretty crazy about planes how they f stay in the air but they're so heavy that's also really crazy and some really great engineering that's behind all of that. But what is also crazy is that they are not safe from being robbed. That is crazy. Like, why would you rob a plane when you're, like, inside it? It's not like you can just rob it and run off. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're, you're trapped on this airship. Right. And, like, and, like, in my action movie thinking, if the pilot knows that the plane's being robbed, can he just like jerk the steering and like make everyone stumble so that the does that guy's off guard? But no, he can't do that because that's not safe for the stewardess and things. So can't do that. Why not have a like a proposed plan? Like, you know, if someone's trying to rob the plane immediately get into an empty seat buckle in and the pilot like barrel rolls the plane like a whole bunch of times like a whole bunch of times yeah so the yeah, guys that... or lady robbers just like bouncing back and forth back and forth yeah no matter 
who you are, how big you are, what kind of guns you got, what kind of bomb you got. If you're inside of a of a plane that's barrel rolling, you're gonna be subject to gravity's mercy. Yes, you are. So, in addition to my FBI training, I'm also training to be a fighter pilot. And that right there is going to be number one on my list. As soon as I learn how to fly is to learn how to barrel roll as a technique to use against people trying to rob my plane. Well, while you're becoming a fighter pilot, I I send my kudos to you. I will be training Thank to become you. a sky marshal. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Maybe we'll end up on the same flights. I hope not if you don't have a signal for when you're going to do one of your maneuvers. Of course we're going to have a signal, of course, because, like, if someone stands up and, like, this is a heist, you will immediately buckle yourself in and yell, cuckoo-ca-choo, and then I will hear that and know, boom, barrel roll, right then. Mm. All right. So we got our tag team combo going. Hope they never listen to our podcast for this episode in particular. Yeah, well, seeing as how they do not know our legal names, it doesn't matter if they do know they do listen or not. That's I hope true. you're listening. We need those listens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even if you're a bad person, listen to our podcast. Yes, please. Well, all right, Key. I, I think that today we shouldn't talk about airplane heists. And I'm sure we found some pretty interesting cases to talk about today. I believe we have, and I think airplane heists are crazy, crazy things we should not talk about. Absolutely. Absolutely not. Would you like to take us away today? No, I'm going to graciously pass the baton to you to be first. All right. Well, listeners, buckle in. We are heading for takeoff. This is your Captain V. And gather around, children. It is time for a tale of crime. On Thanksgiving Eve, 1971, the man known as D.B. Cooper went to the airport and bought a ticket in cash as Dan Cooper from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. Mr. Cooper sat in seat 18C, wearing a trench coat, suit and carrying a briefcase and brown paper bag. He got comfortable in his seat and ordered an alcoholic beverage. I wonder if there was a sandwich in that bag. You know, that's what I feel like only brown paper bags are used for. They're right. real wrinkly and then they have a Ziploc bag with a ham sandwich inside of it. And some potato chips, plain of course, and an apple. And an apple, yeah. Yes. At one point of the flight, a flight attendant crossed his path. He handed her a note. She smiled and tucked it in her pocket. Mr. Cooper then insisted that she read the note right then and there because he had a bomb. Now, if you hand a flight attendant, a female flight attendant, a piece of paper, and she puts it in her pocket, she probably thinks it's your number, and that she's so over it already. Like, this fight just began. She's already over this. Right. You know, she probably thought, oh, he's being a cad and, you know, trying to hand me a note saying, hey, chickadee, you're you're cute. Here's my number. Hey, toots. Yeah. Meet me after the plane lands. And she's like, oh, thank you. Pocket. Never going to read that. And then he just says, no, no, no. Go ahead and read that. I have a bomb. Mm. Right, like, couldn't you not just have come out with that instead of going through all these formalities of handing her a note? Seriously. Which probably said, I have a bomb, like. So, and uh, inside of his briefcase was the components that seemed to have made up a bomb. Cooper made the flight attendant write down a list of demands. $200,000 in cash inside of a sack two back parachutes, two front parachutes, and the fuel truck to be waiting on ground for when the plane lands for the ransom items to be picked up. And he wanted the 200000 cash and $20 bills. He also informed the flight attendant that if there was any foul play, he would, quote-unquote, do the job. Which I'm guessing means blow the bomb, or, it, you know, detonate the bomb. Yes, that means click, click, boom. 
supposedly. Supposedly, because this thing was in a briefcase. I didn't see any information about there being, like, you know, a immediate, like, you know, press the red button and blow up. It's probably, like, on a timer system. So if there was any funny business, that would be too late. It would be too late for him to, to know, you know? Right, because this is way before cell phones, so it's not like he yeah, could just detonate like, it with a cell phone. Right, yeah, he would have to open hip his briefcase and probably press a couple buttons and so it knows to count down. And by then, the police could already got him, the bomb squad can already get the, get the briefcase and just drive off in the distance while trying to deactivate the bomb or whatever. I don't know. Or, I mean, they're on a plane during a flight. If there's any funny business, okay, you're going to die yourself if you detonate it. So that seemed like a kind of an empty-ish threat. Yeah. So when the plane landed, Cooper exchanged the 36 passengers for the money and parachutes. He kept some of the crew aboard and took off from Mexico City. Cooper requested that the plane fly below 10,000 feet and he put on his wraparound sunglasses during the second half of the flight. As the plane flew between Seattle and Reno, Nevada, Cooper took off his clip-on tie and jumped out of the rear door with two of the parachutes in the money. He was never to be seen again. The clip-on tie was the only piece of evidence investigators were able to pull a DNA sample from. The only other trail they had left to go off of were the serial numbers on the $20 bills given to Cooper. I don't know where he put this tie at, but for the tie not to fly out the window when he opened up this door and, you know, the vacuum sucks off everything. Like, you know, the vacuum just whooshes everything out of the plane. So I don't Maybe know where... he stuck it in the pocket of the seat. Like, you know, he took it off, stuck it in the pocket without thinking and just, you know. Yeah, you think so? Because, I mean, like, if, I, if I take up a tie, I'm going to throw the tie. And when I throw the tie and these doors open, that tie is going to fly out the, the, the plane before I do. But... No, I feel like he was calmly sitting there, like, you know, getting ready, unbuttoning his sleeves, rolling them up, took his tie off, tucked it in the pocket, you know, tightened his shoes up. I feel like he was, like, sitting and preparing, like he was really calm. Mm-hmm. A very, very maniacal person. Indeed. Eight years later, a young boy found a rotting package containing $5,800 and the serial numbers matched the ones on the dirty money. The FBI just about dug up all of Tinabar, the stretch of beach next to the Columbia River in Washington State, to find no additional leads. That is another interesting portion. You really think the kid found $5,800 or he found a ton of money and that him and his father only turned in $5,800? I feel like with them knowing the serial numbers, if they had kept it and used it, they would have been found out. That's true. That's true. About 800 suspects were examined. This eventually narrowed down to 24. Also, the initials DB meant nothing to the FBI, as no such initials belonged to anyone investigated. There were no accomplices on the ground either. This was proven by the fact that the pilot chose the route to take from Mexico, to take to Mexico City. Cooper just demanded the destination and the altitude level. So, as far as suspects, we have just three of them to really dive into. One suspect being Richard McCoy. He conducted a heist of his own before, which almost matched Cooper's exactly. Something else that was a flag that was McCoy's family identified an object left behind on the plane by Cooper that was never made public. Though McCoy was later ruled out because he did not match the descriptions given by the flight attendants that came in contact with Mr. Cooper. McCoy was sentenced to 45 years in prison as punishment for his own heist, then escaped from prison in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, and died in a gunfight with FBI agents. But what about the DNA? They said they had DNA from the tie. That DNA, they were not able to trace it to anyone. Oh. It was it was just like a ghost fragment. It's, it didn't lead to anything. But we will get back into the tie a little bit later, though. Okay. 
Dwayne Weber was the second suspect. On Weber's deathbed, he apparently whispered to his wife that he was Dan Cooper. To back his claim, Mrs. Cooper said that her late husband used to sleep talk about leaving fingerprints on a plane. He had a knee injury, and his handwriting was found in, in the margins of a book about D.V. Cooper. His wife also claimed that Dwayne took her to the beach where the boy found the bag of money, and that Dwayne had an old Northwest Airlines ticket for no real reason. Now, one of the, one of the FBI members, Ralph Hamelsburg, says, quote-unquote, he matches the physical description. He does have a criminal background that I have always felt associated with the case. Hamelsback believed Mrs. Cooper and stated that her story has credibility, but in the end, Hamelsback did not believe that Dwayne was D.B. Cooper. Hmm. I mean, that's a lot of circumstantial evidence, but I guess not enough to definitively say. Yeah, and even if it was him, he just died, so there's nothing they can do now. But they also... Can't. Where was, like, okay, he took her to the beach, but did he take her there and have her dig? Like, was he having her look for the money? Like, where was the money if if that was the case? Like, it was only $5,000 that the boy found, so that means the other money had to be somewhere. That's, like, $195,000. Yeah, and it's really interesting, too, because, like, this... This was in Washington State, and and it said that he jumped out the plane during the second half of the trip, and so he was going to Mexico City, Mexico, and so if he jumped out of the plane, he would have jumped out, I don't know, like some other some other state, not Washington State, you know. But, right. But I mean, the air has funny funny ways to work, I guess. Going through the air, ten thousand. Maybe feet. he jumped out. Wow. And he paid someone in cash to drive him back or caught a Greyhound bus. Yeah, because he has the money to do so. So, and, and 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 like you know, he's just he's just still wearing his suit, so he could just blend back in with society. Or yeah. he got a ticket, a plane ticket with his real name or another name, because back in the day it was way easier to just get on a plane and fly somewhere than it is now. That's true. Like, I don't even think you need an ID. You can just pay and, and walk on there. That is pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, right. that's true. And our last suspect is Kenneth Christensen. His brother became convinced that Kenneth was D.B. Cooper after watching an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> Kenneth, Kenneth was a flight purser for the same airline that D.B. hijacked which backed some people's theory that it was an inside job. Additionally, Kenneth liked bourbon and purchased a house shortly after the hijacking. Well, Ooh. like during that, during that time frame. The biggest link to Cooper, however, is that the fact that when the flight attendant was shown a picture, she said he looked most like Cooper than any other suspects she had been shown. However, when studying the case, many experts said that the man who jumped from the plane did not seem trained to do so. If an unskilled parachutist jumped out of the plane, they would have likely died and the body of Cooper was never found. Another, another theory seems from a group of citizen sleuths is that Cooper was an, an employee for Boeing, the, the airplane that he jumped out of. Even though the case has been suspended, Cooper could still be prosecuted under the Hobbs Act if found today. Now, the citizen sleuths thing saying that he was an employee was that the clip-on tie, when it was analyzed, it had DNA, but also it had titanium and another very rare substance at the time. And both of those substances were found in airplanes, so it was found in the Boeing factory. That's where that stems from. There, there was the DNA was on an identifiable sample somehow, and mm -hmm. then it was titanium and another substance that had to do with like turbine, turbine, uh, like a turbine factory would have. 
Okay, so all of these guys have very plausible circumstantial evidence, but just not enough to connect. It's not enough to connect. Like, you if know, all of that was just one person, I'd be like, oh, okay. Do you know how long this case went on for? The investigation? When when did this happen? Back in the 70s? Yeah, yeah. 1971 is when is when the uh, uh, heist happened. So, 49 years? Oh, 45 years. Um, they, they, they recently closed it because... They, we recently went cold because of just no 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 lead no end in sight well obviously these investigators never watched prison break because db cooper was a character on prison break and what happened is everybody had suspicions that he was db cooper but he always denied it until they were breaking out of prison. Oh, spoiler alert. And he was stabbed and he was dying on the floor when everybody was getting out the window. And he told Schofield, he was like, look, it's true. I am D.B. Cooper. I buried all the money under a silo in Tuel, Utah or Tuelli, however you pronounce it. And he was like, the government lied. They wanted to downplay it. It wasn't $200,000 that I got. It was $5 million. So all the prisoners heard that and they all rushed to Tuelli, Utah to try to find the money that he stated he buried under the silo while he was dying in the infirmary during the okay. escape. Okay, so how, how did this guy get in prison in the first place? Now, Prison Break took place in Fox River, Illinois. So he was arrested on some other charge because he was doing life in prison. So, like, there was always rumors swirling around that he was D.B. Cooper and he always denied it. But how he proved it was he had a bill like um a hundred dollar bill that he said was from the heist he was like look at how old this is look at the serial number this is from the heist this is it even though like you said db cooper requested all 20s we don't know if they gave him all 20s just because mm. you request it doesn't mean that's what they give you right right but that was like a part of the prison break outline with or plot line which is my all-time, okay, I don't know if Prison Break or Dexter is my all-time number one show. I would say Prison Break because I have like every single season on DVD and I can watch it nonstop as if I've never seen it before. Same with Dexter, but I don't have Dexter on DVD, so I think Prison Break wins. <laughs> I can see. <laughs> yes. But... They need to search Utah because that seems plausible. Yes, it does. And uh, to this day, no one knows what happened other than the makers of Prison Break, apparently. And no mm -hmm. one knows who did who D.B. Cooper is. Which is crazy because with all that money, if he jumped out over the lower part of the United States, do you think he like maybe hitched a ride into Mexico? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That very, that very well could be possible that he still went to Mexico, or he bought like a car for cash. Because I mean, cars were like what ten dollars back in the seventies. <laughs> like maybe like, he just bought a car and then drove himself down there. Like a Mustang was like two thousand four hundred dollars or something like that. Oh, so cheap. So yeah, he literally could have just like jumped out, waited to the next day. Walked onto a car lot, gave them money and a fake name, and drove away. Because it was a lot easier to buy cars then, too. Yeah, yeah. Everything's so difficult now. It's so crazy that he jumped. He jumped out of a like a like a you know a passenger plane, 
like a big old Boeing seventy seven two seven. Right, with possibly no parachuting experience. Yeah. Like what if he just like fell into a forest? Because because like um other reports say it was nighttime and there was like, you know, a light, uh, like cloud coverage over everything. So you jump out of this plane, you don't know what you're seeing. And that one parachute was a training chute and the other one was an army parachute. So the training chute was shown shut shown shut and the army chute you can't steer. They just they just they just glide, they just cover down, that's it. So they gave him parachutes, but they gave him terrible parachutes. But it's not like he was found like tangled in trees or a body found like laying somewhere. This is a real mystery. It, That's it really, crazy. It really is. Now, my heist is no mystery at all. Everybody knows who's who did it. And it also has a movie that I've seen and love that I'm going to tell you about as well. But mine is the Lufthansa heist. And this one also differs from yours. They did not rob a plane while it was in motion. So they were a lot safer in their heist. Or so they thought. Or so they thought. Now, the Lufthansa heist was a robbery at New York's JFK International Airport on December 11, 1978. An estimated $5.875 million, which would be equivalent to about $23 million in 2019, was stolen with $5 million in cash and $875,000 in jewelry making it the largest cash robbery committed on American soil at the time. Wow. Jeez. Right. Jimmy Burke, a Lucchese crime family associate, was reputed to be the mastermind behind the robbery, but he was never officially charged in connection with the crime. The highest magnitude made it one of the largest or no, longest investigated crimes in the U.S. The latest arrest associated with the robbery was made in 2014. And we'll get to that. So, the heist was planned by Jimmy Burke and carried out by several associates. The plot began when bookmaker Martin Krugman told Henry Hill, which was an associate of Burke's, that uh, Latunza flew in currency to its cargo terminal at JFK International Airport. The information had originally come from Lewis Werner, a worker at the airport who owed Krugman $20,000 for gambling debt, which would be equivalent to about $84,000 in 2019. Could you imagine being into somebody for that much money for gambling? No, that's when people start chopping off fingers. Right. So, his co-worker, Peter Grunwald, was also, um, like, part of where the information came from. Now, Werner and Grunwald had previously been successful in stealing $22,000 in foreign currency equivalent to about $99,000 in 2019 from their employer, Lufthansa, in 1976. So Werner and Grunwald had already been, like, you know, skimming off the top from Lufthansa when they were, like, bringing money in. And they were bringing, like, tons of, like, foreign currency, I guess, to put in, like, the international banks in New York. And like the current currency exchangers. So like this was something that they did pretty regularly. Now Burke decided on Tommy D. Simone, Angelo Seppi, Louis Cafora, Joe Manry, Paolo Licastri, and Robert McMahon as the robbers. Burke's sons Frank 
would drive one of the backup vehicles and Parnell Stacks Edwards' job was to dispose of the van afterwards. Now, depending on their role in the robbery, each participant was to receive somewhere from $10,000 to $50,000. However, those amounts were based on the estimate haul, which was only $2 million, compared to the actual take of $5.875 million. So, Werner was set to receive a flat 10% of the take. And, you know, with them thinking it was only $2 million, like, they they all were, like, really coming into a lot of money. A pleasant surprise for them. Right. Unfortunately. It does not end so pleasantly. On December 11th, 1978, around 3 a.m., six men in a black Ford Econoline pulled up to the Latunza Cargo Building 261. The padlock on the gate was cut with a pair of bolt cutters. Some of the crew climbed up the stairs of the East Tower and entered wearing ski masks and gloves. A late model Buick was positioned in the terminal parking lot with its lights off. Inside the terminal, John Murray, a senior cargo agent, was the first employee to be taken hostage. He was walked into the lunchroom where five other Latunza employees were on their meal break and was ordered to lie flat on the floor with their eyes closed. Murray was asked who else was in the warehouse. He said that Rudy Eirich, the night shift cargo traffic manager, and Carrie Whalen, a cargo transfer agent, were there. Murray was forced to lure Eirich to come upstairs. He joined the rest of the captured employees. Outside the terminal, Whalen noticed two unmasked men sitting in a black van parked at the Lufthansa Cargo Building 261 ramp as he drove past. So, you know, he was just doing his regular duties, driving past, and was like, hmm, that's suspicious. So, Whalen parked and walked toward the van. One of the men told him to get into the van. Whalen screamed and ran for help, but he was pistol whipped and thrown into the van. Then he was brought to join the other hostages in the lunchroom. Dang, Waylon. Right, he tried. He he tried to get away. Inside the warehouse, employee Rolf Redman heard a noise by the loading ramp and went to investigate. He was captured and brought with Waylon to the lunchroom to join the others. Some of the robbers took Eirik at gunpoint to the double door vault. They removed 72 15-pound cartons of untraceable money from the vault and placed it in the van. At 4.21 a.m., the van pulled to the front of the building and the crash car pulled in behind. Two gunmen climbed in the van as the others got into the Buick. The employees were told not to call the Port Authority until 4.30 a.m., and that's when the first call to the police were recorded. So that's basically like a nine-minute leeway that they're giving themselves. That's not a lot of time. No, no, I had to be like really confident to do something like that. Right. The robbers drove to meet Burke at an auto repair shop in Canarsie, Brooklyn. The boxes of money were removed from the van and placed in the trunks of the two automobiles. Burke and his son drove off in one car. The four others, Manry, McMahon, DeSimone, and Seppi, drove away in the second car. Parnell Stacks Edwards had failed to get rid of the van that was used in the heist. Edwards was supposed to have driven the vehicle to New Jersey, where it, along with you know any potential evidence that was inside, was to be destroyed in a junkyard belonging to John Gotti. Instead, Edwards parked the van in front of a fire hydrant at his girlfriend's apartment, where police discovered it two days after the heist. 
So he basically just didn't care at that point. Like he left it in front of a fire hydrant, which is a ticketable offense. And he left it there for two days. Oh my gosh. Amateur. Right. Which he really wasn't. Like, why would you do that? Like, this right here is what set everything off. So, Paul Vario subsequently ordered DeSimone to kill Edwards. Once he found out where Edwards was hiding, DeSimone and Angelo Seppi visited Edwards and shot him five times in the head. From the van, fingerprints were lifted of several perpetrators of the robbery. Of course, that's why he was supposed to take it to New Jersey to a junkyard. Mm. Now, the FBI identified Burke's crew as the likely perpetrators within three days of the robbery, largely due to the discovery of the van, coupled with Edwards' pre-established connections with Burke gang at Robert's Lounge. They set up heavy surveillance following the gang in helicopters and bugging their vehicles, the phones at Robert's Lounge, and even the pay phones nearest to the bar. The FBI managed to record a few bits of info, such as Angelo Seppi telling an unidentified man about a quote-unquote brown case and a bag from Lufthansa and his telling his girlfriend, Hope Barron, quote-unquote, dig a hole in the cellar. But this was not enough to definitively connect Burke's crew to the heist, and no search warrants could be issued. Now, according to Henry Hill, Jimmy Burke became paranoid and agitated once he realized how much attention Edwards' failure had drawn and resolved to kill anyone who could implicate him in the heist starting with Edwards himself like I said uh, you know Edwards was killed almost immediately just a week after the heist Edwards was shot and killed in his apartment on December 18th 1978 by Tommy DeSimone and Angelo Seppi now here's where the bodies are starting to hit the floor Martin Krugman one of the airport workers was murdered and dismembered on January 6, 1979 by Burke and Seppi in a Bonanno crime family capo, Vincent Asaro's fence factory. Now, Krugman was making increasingly nervous and angry demands for his $500,000 cut from the robbery, and this convinced Burke that he was about to inform the FBI. His body was never found, and in 1986, he was declared legally dead. Now, Thomas Tommy Simone, one of the higher-up guys with Burke, disappeared on January 14, 1979. But reportedly, this was not on Burke's orders. Simone disappeared for having carried out unrelated murder of two made Gambino crime family members and Gotti associates, William Billy Bats Davino and Ronald Foxy Giroth. So he was probably killed by Gambino family members, not by Burke, because him and Burke were like on the level together. Richard Eaton was murdered on January 17, 1979. Although he was uninvolved with the actual heist, he was tortured and murdered by Burke after getting away with $250,000 of Burke's money in a fake cocaine scam and skimming some of the money from the heist while it was laundered through various legitimate establishments, which included Monteleone's club, and that's Tom Monteleone. Eaton's body was discovered hogtied and hanging in a meat freezer truck. Teresa Ferrara was the occasional mistress of Tommy DeSimone and an associate of both Richard Eaton, who was in the meat truck, and Tom Metillion, which had 
the clubs that the money was being laundered through. She disappeared February 10th, 1979, and on May 18th of that year, her dismembered torso was found floating in Barnegat Inlet near Toms River, New Jersey. So you see how fast he's getting rid of people. Yeah, like all the loose ends. Right. Tom Monteleone was killed sometime in March 1979. Monteleone owned the Players Club, a local bar frequented by Burke's gang members, and was accused by Burke of conspiring with Eaton, the meat truck guy, and Ferrara, the mistress of Tommy DeSimone, on the fake cocaine deal and skimming part of the heist money while laundering it through the club. So he had to go. Now, Lewis and Joanna Kafora. So Kafora was one of the robbers. They were also murdered in March 1979. Now, Kafora had been Burke's cellmate during his time in prison and was contracted by Burke to launder some of the money from the heist through his collection of legitimate lots. And I believe those are car lots. But Kafora's indiscreet, gaudy lifestyle and insisted on informing his wife, Joanna, about gang business, including the heist, eventually led to Burke ordering both to be murdered. Within days of the heist and against Burke orders, guess what Kafora did? Guess what he did? Hmm. What? <laughs> Okay, obviously you've never seen Goodfellas. Kafora bought his wife a custom pink Cadillac Fleetwood with his share of the heist money, and he was brazenly driving it to meetings just blocks from the JFK Air Cargo Center where the FBI was still investigating. I mean, I mean, if the FBI agent saw a pink Cadillac, they wouldn't think anything of it, right? He was being way too gaudy and too flashy. He was drawing too much attention like, okay, so you have, you know, a legitimate business, but not, you know, a couple days after the heist, you're buying a custom Cadillac, not that type of money. He was drawing too much attention to himself by being too flashy. Mm. And Lewis and Joanna Kafora, their bodies were never found. Joe, Buddha, Manry, and Robert McMahon were both night shift Air France cargo supervisors and also two of the robbers. Now, Manry was a longtime Burke gang associate. His inside information helped plan the heist. Manry was repeatedly offered the opportunity to turn state's evidence, which we all know means to be a snitch and enter the witness protection program. And so was Robert McMahon. Now this offer, they both refused, but Manry was found dead in a parked car alongside McMahon five months after the heist on either May 15th or 16th, 1979, both shot execution style in the back of the head. Now, even though they, they did not take any offers, Burke was like, nope, y'all got to go to. Now, Paulo LaCastri, another one of the robbers, was murdered on June 13th, 1979. He was not involved in the actual heist, but he was a liaison from the Gambino family whose job it was to oversee the plans and ensure that the Gambinos received their $200,000 cut. His naked and bullet-riddled corpse was discovered on a burning trash heap six months after the heist. With the murders of most of the heist associates and planners and little evidence and few witnesses remaining to connect Burke or his crew to the heist, those murders pretty much got rid of any Lucien. But 
the authorities were eventually able to gather enough evidence to prosecute the inside man, Lewis Werner, for helping to plan the heist. Werner was the only man convicted of the robbery, robbery in 1979 and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Now, Whalen was also interrogated by the authorities, and when he was shown the police archive photos, he positively identified one of his assailants as Angelo Seppi. Einrich later reported that the robbers were well-informed and knew about the safety systems in the vault, including the double-door system, whereby one door must be shut in order for the other one to be open without activating the alarm to the Port Authority police unit at the airport. So, in 1980, April 1980, Henry Hill, which was pretty much like the glue that brought all these people together, was arrested on unrelated narcotics charges. He became convinced that his former associates planned to have him killed. Vario, the guy who he was dealing drugs for, and Burke. So he thought one of the two, or even both, were trying to have him killed. He's looking over his shoulder real hard. Right. So Hill was pretty much the only person left who could link Burke to the heist. Now, with a long sentence hanging over him, Hill agreed to become an informant and enter the witness protection program with his family. He was not able to help the government obtain convictions against Vario or Burke for the Latunza heist, although both were convicted of other crimes as a result of his testimony. Now, on July 18, 1984, Angelo Seppi, uh, remember, he was the like the other no, number two man with Burke, other than DeSimone. He was a close, loyal, trustworthy friend of DeSimone, who got killed like pretty quick after the heist for the unrelated gang hit that he put out. Rodriguez and Burke, so he was like, a friend to all three of those. And he was the person responsible for most of the murders for Burke's quote unquote witness elimination program of 1978 through 79. Now, Seppi was murdered along with his girlfriend, Joanna Lombardo by an unknown member of the Lucchese hit squad. This happened reportedly a week after robbing a Lucchese-affiliated drug trafficker of thousands of dollars in cocaine and cash designated for the organization. Now, remember, Burke was a part of the Lucchese crime family, as was Seppi, so he basically robbed his own people. Dang. And he was killed for it, but this was reportedly not a hit commissioned by Burke. So somebody else took him out for doing that. Now, more recently, on January 23rd, 2014, Vincent Osario, a high-ranking member of the Bonanno crime family, was arrested in conjunction with an indictment charging him with involvement in the Lufthansa heist. But Henry Hill reported to a New York Post page six reporter that Asario had no involvement in the robbery. On November 12, 2015, Asaro was acquitted of all charges connected to the Lufthansa robbery by a jury in the Federal District Court of Brooklyn. And to this day, the stolen cash and jewelry have never been recovered. Wow, that is so crazy, man. Now, this Lufthansa heist was just a small plot of the, I believe, 1996 movie Goodfellas, which was based on Henry Hill, like, after he became a informant, 
he also like he told everything pretty much and and this movie was made based on the stories he was telling so he told about the Lufthansa heist who was killing people how they were killed everything like that's why some of these people were never found but they knew that they were dead because Henry Hill was like there like he couldn't be made because he was half Italian so he was not like a high ranking member but he basically like was with all the high ranking members you're saying like a canary he did and he was in witness protection I believe he may still be alive but I don't know because they changed his name and everything like you know, he, everybody knew that Henry Hill had been the consultant on this movie because it was written from his perspective. But he had, like, had his name changed when he went into witness protection and everything, and nobody knew where he was. That's so cool. It is. Well, so, if you get a chance to watch Goodfellas, that is another one of my favorite, favorite movies. I have it on DVD. I love Goodfellas because, A, Ray Liotta played Henry Hill and I love me some young Ray Liotta also Joe Pesci is in there Joe Pesci who doesn't love Joe Pesci also De Niro Robert De Niro I think he played Burke he played Jimmy Burke so it was like a ton of big name people in this movie and it was so so good and by the end like Henry Hill was like so coked out of his mind that you know it was just crazy it was it was so crazy but it was such a good movie and it's based on a true story like he's telling all his like crime family like what they were doing how they were doing it everything he was just telling it all well, that is a film I have put in my much watch, much watch list because I've heard of Goodfellas, but um, I've just never seen it. Yes, you much must watch it. It is so good. So, although my had a lot of death at the end, it wasn't a terribly sad story. It's like, it's so much of a truth is stranger than fiction story. Like, okay, you guys did all of this, and then pretty much everybody was dead within a year. Like, that wasn't even worth it. Yeah, yeah, that, that score, man, took out, took out the whole fleet. It really did. And I wonder if, if well, according to the movie, like, Henry was involved in like the cocaine and you know he had like his own little side hustles going so like his money was like mm, mm, wobbly but he was like hiding cash and everything and it's crazy you should watch it it's it's definitely a good good story to see like an insider's perspective from the actual New York mob so you have anything to bring this up I do not. Honestly, I don't. Well, while we're on old movies, I just want to say that I tweeted Goldie Hawn to let her know that she's great. All her old movies are classics. I loved Overboard. I love Death Becomes Her. And more people need to tell her that she's awesome. And hopefully I either get a lot of retweets so that she will know people do agree or she'll retweet me. Yeah, people go go tweet at your favorite childhood actors and actresses and tell them how much you appreciate them. Yes, yes, do that because Overboard is a great movie. Let's not talk about that debacle of a remake they made like in 2018. Let's burn that from our memories. Well, I didn't even know that was a thing. Good. 
people do not need to know that the remake was a thing because it was a horrid, horrid remake. Man, did not do it justice, huh? At all. They just you took a perfect, perfect movie and just destroyed it. Overboard was perfect as it was. They could have used the same exact script with just new actors and actresses and it still would have been good. But they wanted to make weird changes and it just didn't make sense. I conform to the, the young audience. It wasn't even that. It's like, okay, have you ever seen Overboard? No. Quick, quick script. So Kurt Russell is a contractor. He's hired to build like a closet or shoe rack or something on these rich people's yachts. Goldie Hawn is the wife of the rich guy, treats him horribly. He's angry about it. She ends up going overboard, losing her memory, and he sees her picture on TV. Her husband doesn't go to claim her. So Kurt Russell's character goes and claims her, convincing her that she is his wife. Of course, they're not rich. He has like four sons. It's basically like he lives in Animal House. And he brings this rich woman who has amnesia into his house, claiming that she's his wife and that those were her kids and forces her to live with him. Like, you know, he treats her really bad at first, but then they like actually kind of start to fall in love. And then when she starts remembering things and her husband finally is like, okay, I guess I got to go find my wife. (laughs) You know, he comes to pick her up and like this, you know, fancy car, this limousine or something. And she goes back with them because she's starting to remember stuff. And, you know, in the end, she ends up back with Kurt Russell because she realized that she loved being with the family more than she loved being with her husband who didn't truly care about her, even though they were rich. Hmm. That sounds very wholesome. It is, but it's like what happens in between is really funny. It's like a really good movie. It's from like maybe the late 80s I think I don't know but in the remake it's like the guy is like a rich party playboy and the female character is like cleaning his she's like a maid or something and she's cleaning his yacht and he's the one that falls overboard and so she like convinces him that they're married but he's Hispanic, she's white, her kids are all white, and he's like, well, why do my kids not even look half Hispanic? She's like, oh, because these are not your kids, like, you had erectile issues, and I I had to, you know, it it was just really stupid, like, nothing about it was plausible. Mm. Like, this happened in 2018, he could have easily Googled himself and realized who he was. That's true. Or, you know, it's like, they had absolutely no pictures together. Nothing like, I mean, it, it just was not plausible of a remake to be set in like current times. Right. So it was stupid. It was horrible. It didn't do well. It didn't make any money. Good. Cause y'all shouldn't have made that piece of crap in the first place, but original overboard. Awesome. Well, you heard it here first folks. Yeah, um, I heard it here first. Watch Overboard 1987, not Overboard 2018. Right. Let's not even mention that atrocity anymore. <laughs> also, Death Becomes Her. That is another really good Goldie Hawn movie. I'm going to need you to get up on your Goldie Hawn movies. All right. I'll see what I can do. Private Benjamin. Uh, another one where she's like rich and spoiled and she accidentally joins the army thinking it's a country club. Huh. I mean, come on. The one where she was like a football coach. I can't remember the name of it offhand. Anyway, she has a good a good videography. You should invest some time. All right. I will do my best to get enough on that. As hopefully all of our listeners do. Go watch some old Goldie Hawn movies. She's a classic, as are her movies. And also, hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, WSTAT underscore pod, 
or the Gmail. We shouldn't talk about this at gmail.com. Send us some stories, some feedback. We have a YouTube page. You can leave comments there. You can listen to us on the YouTube page if you don't have access always to one of the podcast apps. And, you know, give us a like, a shout out. Subscribe to our channel. Yeah, subscribe, comment. Let's discuss some of these cases we're talking about. And let's get your suggestions on cases that we should try to do. Yes, share it with everyone. Share it with your family, your friends, your enemies, your not-so-much enemies. And on that note, I'm Key. And I'm V. And this has been We Shouldn't Talk About This. Thanks for listening. Bye.